Welcome back, everybody, to the Domcast episode 24, where for the playoffs, I am ready to discuss more. We are here on a Thursday morning. Every game two in every series has happened. As a matter of fact, the game three in a series has already happened in a series that is pretty much over. It is wraps. As I said, I'll be doing podcasts spontaneously throughout the playoffs just because it doesn't make sense to wait an entire week to discuss a week's worth of playoff basketball. Things change, series changed, and oh boy, have series changed. That has definitely happened in more than a couple of these so we are not going to waste any time we're going to dive into it remember if you are enjoying the podcast continue to rate it on spotify apple Podcasts, and if you're on youtube hit the like button that always helps without further ado let's just we're going to go in order we have series that are definitely more interesting than others factors that are more interesting than others but it's easiest to just go in order of what's happened especially because with this first one we can wrap it up pretty quickly i never really had much to say about it after it was kind of clear where it was going it is the sixers and raptors so that's the only series so far where a game three has already taken place the series is 3-0 um it's less about what happened in game two the uh you know from the time scotty barnes got hurt it was like not a series deciding factor but it was just a fact, okay, didn't pick the Raptors to win this series, and now they're shorthanded. This is officially an uphill battle. So, game two happened, and the Sixers were pretty much just getting everything that they needed to get. They were hitting all their marks. James Harden hadn't shot well, uh, but they, having him as a third option was pretty much fine. Tyrese Maxey and Embiid were still doing their things. Hell, Tobias Harris was hitting shots. So you're clicking on all cylinders on offense, the Raptors struggling to generate points, struggling to keep up, which is the problem when you have a team like that, that is good and annoying, but doesn't have a star play, like a superstar player. It's a problem. That's what happens when you get to the NBA playoffs. And then you get to game three, which for a while was actually close. The Sixers were down by double digits, I believe. Uh, Raptors, sorry, Sixers got back into it got close this one actually went to ot and the only thing like i don't even really want to discuss since this is probably a sweep or five games at worst case scenario i really don't even want to discuss much of what's happened on the court this is just this is just funny to watch because raptors fans hate and i mean hate james harden and Embiid. (laughs) the level of, of vitriol and anger that i have seen on the on the interwebs towards their free throw shooting and how the series had been officiated is just incredible content from someone who doesn't really have a dog in the fight especially in game two where i think the raptors fouled them quite a bit it was just really starting to boil over and then Embiid hits the game winning shot uh, down the stretch in, in game three of that fourth quarter he was just incredible just spinning and hitting shots uh, it was very that was one of the keys to the series obviously the Raptors don't have a, a single man coverage for him as nobody really does but they don't even have a good one for him and the play call the play calling was kind of janky there at the end but uh, you know Embiid was able to find some space with very little time get a game winner off in Toronto and now the argument is oh that's not as good as what Kawhi did because that was a game seven walk off to go to the conference finals yeah okay cool but it's it is still fun to it's still fun to see him be conquer a demon though still like because i thought i'm not gonna sit here and say this was not supposed to be a competitive series i thought it was gonna be a competitive series 
Um, I'm not going to turn around now and go, oh, the Raptors were some patty cake ass team. This isn't nearly the same. Yeah, it's it's not the same as the contending team Raptors, but th- this a lot of people thought this series was going to be better. I even saw people picking Toronto to win this series. I wouldn't I wasn't going that far, but um, they, they were good, man. They had a solid season. And, you know, three years ago, Embiid was crying, walking off the floor able to hit a game winner that effectively seals the series it's a it's a cool moment for him I mean, everything does not have to be a, a one-to-one comparison but um you know that that's how twitter works but yeah that, that's literally all i have to say about raptors and sixers like it's it's raps no pun intended um if it looked like it was going to be a series we'd go deeper in and looking at you know the coverages and all that good stuff but it a save for game three it just has not really been a great series so that's the kind of series where if man if you if if you get 3-0 like it, it it the series should be over man first round series should be over after 3-0 there's no reason to play this game for but whatever all right that's gonna happen cool we got raptors and sixes out of the way great um mavericks jazz now we can actually start talking about stuff <laughs> we can start talking about stuff now the series is tied one to one man where do i start where do i start Utah disappointed me, man. They let me down. Not because I was supporting them, but because I I felt like there was just in my coverage of them, I just needed them to to follow a script to walk out of Dallas 2-0. You're playing a Lucas Mavs team, which is still very tight defensively. We're gonna get to that. And they can obviously still get to what they want to do on offense. But all I needed Utah to do to not ruin my prediction, all I needed them to do was not let Spencer Dinwiddie or Jalen Brunson look like star players. That was it. That, that it was it was quite that simple. Because if you go back to the predictions that me and Check did, I was like, I know Jalen Brunson because the Jazz are infinitely stuck in drop basically. Save for a couple of possessions where they play zone, which I don't know why they don't do more. They did it a couple of times in the, in this Dallas game too, and I felt like it worked. But save for that time where they mix it up, they are infinitely in a drop coverage. So I was going, okay, Jalen Brunson, Dinwiddie, the playmakers there, they'll be able to get some shots off. I was not counting on Jalen Brunson getting 41. I was also not counting on Maxi Cleaver getting 25. And the Mavericks hitting 17 uncontested threes. Um, the Mavericks just pushed the Jazz defense. They took the Jazz defense and they said, all right, how bad can it really get? And they tested that because the in theory, yeah, it's bad, but it still shouldn't be. And and don't you've heard if you listen to this podcast a lot, you know that I especially mid-season I was a I was high on Jalen Brunson so it's not like I think Jalen Brunson is some scrub but also that was by far his best scoring output as a as a professional and even during that game as I'm watching I was going and I see the Jazz are able to create a little bit of space I'm going yeah the Mavericks just like game one are not going to be able to sustain it but it just got to a point where they said all right let's just see how far we can push this and then by the end of the game you're looking at a five out situation these same the very same situation that the Clippers had in game six of last year, the Western Conference semifinals. Space the floor, drive, and kick. Rigo Bear cannot cover the rim and cover the corner. I cannot believe I watched the same exact, the same exact game plan defeat them. Maxi Kleber, 
Yeah, we, we went over him having 25. Uh, Spencer Dinwiddie had a couple of possessions where he was able to just beat Donovan Mitchell like he wasn't there. Literally just turned the corner on him. It's a turnstile, man. He's a turnstile. Um, that's not the Jazz. So the, the Jazz defensive problems are well documented. It's not just that. It's definitely the offense as well. The problem with Utah First of all, again, Dallas losing Luka to me didn't really affect their defense because the defense is, is uh, he's not a huge part of that. So they still do what they want defensively. And Utah is fighting for their lives, trying to create buckets. There's nothing in particular that they go to. It's Donovan Mitchell just being Donovan Mitchell. So creating some tough bucket or hitting some tough shot. Jordan Clarkson hitting some pull up. Or Bogdanovich posting up, which, by the way, they were trying to live off of to, to get back into it in the fourth quarter as, as it was getting away from them. They're posting up Bogdan, Bogdan Bogdanovich. It's not a problem. Like, it worked in game one. It worked, and, and he gets some he gets some buckets like that in game two as well. It's just that's, that's their lifeline. Their lifeline is just randomness. It's like the final option of an offensive set where... Everything else is broken down and okay, now we just got to go get a bucket. That's what Utah lives off of and it's making it hard for them to score against this Dallas defense. So you have that issue on top of the fact that you can't defend anything that they're doing, which there's only a couple of instances where it's even tough for Dallas. One instance is when they have Josh Green on the floor. Josh Green, if you didn't know, in theory, coming out of college, I thought, it, I was like, okay, I see Dallas sees him as a 3 and D guy. And that's cool, but he, this is his first year really getting run. He didn't get run on the Carlisle last year, so this is his first year really getting run. And while he is a 36% three-point shooter, he only takes around one a game for the regular season. He doesn't shoot these threes a lot. And so, playoffs, I do like that one thing that Quinn Snyder has done. He said, okay, if Josh Green is on the floor... We're going to make him prove he can hit shots because he doesn't take a lot of them. And it's made him timid. Josh had missed a lot of them in game one. So in game two, you see sometimes he gets the ball and it feels like taking a three would play into the Jazz's hand. So he doesn't. He kind of dribbles around. On one of those, he dribbled around and he was like, all right, you know what? I'm sick of this. They have officially disrespected me. They have Rudy Gobert uh, j- literally sagging off of me. That That's the ultimate disrespect. Terrence Mann took advantage of that last year. Um, Mass took advantage of that at the end of this game. Josh Green was like, all right, bet. I'm gonna go test this now. <laughs> and that's when you figured out, hey, oh, Rudy Gobert is actually a, he's a whole, he's a whole man in the paint. Like he's, he's still a really good defensive player. Um, it's just, he's being horribly exploited on this, this terribly built defensive team. So this, so there's that when Josh Green has the ball. And once again, the zone possessions, I don't know. And I looked, I searched for it. How many possessions the jazz played zone? I only saw a few. And I can't remember exactly when it was in the game, but it made the Mavericks think. And I'm aware you can't play zone for an entire game. Eventually, a team will figure that out. But I feel like that should be mixed in there more because at the moment what you have, again, 17 uncontested threes is a record. In the last 10 seasons, I think they said, in, in the playoffs, I believe that was some record. Dallas, everyone, Dallas knows and Utah is fine with it. that They're going to get an open shot whenever they want it. At least make them think at least make them move the ball around make them pass it to each other make them attack make them expend some energy because dallas is able to get what they want on offense at the moment without using much of it 
And so, as we said, they got to the fourth and uh, that really the end of the third in the fourth. And that's pretty much how they, they made the comeback. That's how it got away from them. Oh, but there, there we go. I knew I was forgetting something. Utah tried something new. So game one, they, they ended up winning. Uh, they escaped with it. Spencer Dinwiddie missed some free throws. He, he missed more free throws than he probably ever will. But they won game one. The big thing was, yeah, look at Rudy Gobert. He, he's done all these things defensively. He's rebounding, and he only got one shot. That's a, that's a true team player. So in game two, they go, all right, well, we're going to try to reward him now because we've been talking about it most of the season, how nobody passes it to him. Nobody uh, looks at him when he's down low. So we're going to try to involve him. They wasted, and especially because they only lost the game by, uh, what is it, six points, and it was a close game down the stretch. They wasted about three or four possessions trying to get Rudy Gobert post touches. I'm just going to put it out there. And here's where I have to separate where I stand versus what they did. Because you, you've heard me on this pod be a proponent of, hey, get Rudy the ball if he's got a point guard on him. Here's the thing. That's when those are the possessions I'm talking about. When he has two hands up under the basket, he's got a guard on him. I feel like he should get the ball in those possessions. That's one thing. Giving him the ball to post up, like in the mid post area on a Maxi Kleber. Uh-uh. Even though the ball clearly went off of Kleber's foot. Uh-uh. No, that's that's not what I was talking about. I did not say give him the ball in the mid post and let him try to create. That's not his game. He has a 25 overall post game. That's not what I said. Now, the lobs. He had two lobs he should have just dunked, fam. Those are the those are passes that I probably would have said that the Utah Jazz should make. And now I see why they don't make them. They, Donovan Mitchell, I, I believe it was Donovan Mitchell two times, threw him a lob. And Rudy Gobert just fell short, fam. He just fell short, just couldn't get, get it above the rim. And there are some people... I guess who would just defend him into the bitter, bitter end. Because on the thread, when I'm posting these, I see some, some people are in the thread going, oh, well, that was a bad pass by Donovan Mitchell, bro. It does, for NBA centers that are seven feet tall and especially athletic ones, it does not have to be the most perfect pass you've ever seen. Sure, you can say it was not a perfect pass by Donovan Mitchell, but I would not venture to say that those were terrible passes. Uh, they, Rudy Gobert is rolling to the rim. The, your, your point guard passes or your guard passes it you got to be able to finish it bro you're seven feet tall uncontested you have to be able to finish that i unless it's just a pass that's so obviously and obnoxiously bad that you can't control it no it, there's i'm not shooting that bail fam i'm not shooting him that bail i'm not you can go see the footage for yourself and decide what type of pass you think it was i'm not shooting that much bail for for a guy who with a 20 foot wingspan i'm just not bro i'm not i'm not they were pitiful finishes. They were pitiful displays of athleticism. And I would be mad too if I was Donovan Mitchell. <laughs> and then in the last one, D-Mitch fed him the ball. Uh, not in, I don't remember if, really if it was in transition, but Gobert was kind of deep um, into the paint. Donovan Mitchell running, hands it off to him. Gobert puts it up. And it's a really, really weak attempt. He's, he's right there. It's kind of point blank. It's a really weak attempt. He just kind of flipped it up. I missed it now how many possessions did i just count one was the mid post which was just a honestly that was a bad idea i don't know who i don't know what part of the game that was but whatever but we're counting and then there was two lobs and then there was that one so that was four possessions two or six eight that was eight points eight potential points they lost by six 
even if you want to discount the Maxi Kleber win, that was six potential points. They lost by six. That Gobert just didn't finish. So that's all I'm saying. They they wasted a significant amount of possessions, making it a point to get him the ball when in game two of a series you were leading. I don't think they really needed to make it a point. I get, I mean, I get it trying to diversify the offense because especially the way the offense is right now where it's just a bunch of randomness. I get it. I 100% get trying to trying to get creative and, and do something different that, that might open up another point of attack for you. I get that. Uh, but yeah, so they probably won't be doing that anymore. <laughs> I think that was, I think that those were all the chances that, uh, that Mr. Gobert was gonna, was gonna get at that. And, um, so there's no reason for me to sit and harp on how Utah lost that game. It's now looking at what's happening in the future. Forgive me if I start slowly speaking here. My computer absolutely looks like it's trying to freeze on me and I want to punch it. Because I'm just sitting here harmlessly talking about basketball on a Thursday morning. And this shit is, is just, yeah. Anyways, whatever. We'll see what happens when I, when I get done. Um, the future of this series. It's now 1-1. In a regular playoff series, you're happy if you come out of a team's home building with a split. That's the goal. However, this is the... Dallas Mavericks without their MVP candidate came out of it with a split and he's now slated to return. They're saying uh, Luka Magic is going to be back in game three or game four. I think there's a very obvious way to handle this, being that it's a calf strain, even though apparently the it's, it's, it's a calf strain that's higher up and it's not like where it endangers his Achilles. I, I honestly don't care. Like it's a, it's a calf strain is a calf strain. I just don't. I just say don't test any lower body injuries in a way that might make you overcompensate and hurt something else. I just say don't do that. I think the obvious way to handle this, since you since Dallas got the split, going back to Utah, and you know that at this point it's looking as if Dallas is not going to adjust. I saw Utah's not gonna adjust. Go to game three without Luca. You almost won game one. You won game two. At this at this point, this group can play with Utah without Luca. They can compete with them and or beat them. So try to win game three without Luka is what I would do. I try to win that game without him. And then and so just buy him as much time as possible. And if you win game three, hell, try to win game four without him, honestly. Um, but it, it looks like they want to they don't want to really play that type of game. They want to get him back on the floor as soon as possible because it is the playoffs and things happen. So maybe don't test it. But I really wouldn't bring him back until they until they lose another game. So obviously, if you lose at home or if you lose in Utah game three, then bring him back game four if it's possible. But hell, if it's if it's if possible, don't bring him back until you lose again, because you can win. I, they could honestly go to Utah and end up winning both of those. So, yeah, play it by ear. Basically, Luca will be back and that will change everything, by the way. I had Utah in six because I thought, I, first of all, I did not foresee Luka coming back in game three or four. Like, I thought that was with the calf strain. I didn't see that happening. He come back game three or four, um, and they're only bringing Luka back, and Luka's already said he's not going to play unless he's 100% healthy and he knows there's no risk. That means he'll, he'll pretty much be what we expect him to be, hopefully anyways. And so if that happens, and looking at what's happened in these first two games, I, I can't come up with any conceivable way Utah would win this series. 
I mean, for fuck's sake, they're winning the series without even using Dwight Powell much as a lob threat. That's such a that's a that's a big feature of, of what Dallas gets when Luca's on the floor is lob threats and obviously Doncic just being able to create ISO buckets. Um there's a lot of things they're doing without and still and still pretty much being right there with them. Throw Luca back onto it. I yeah, Utah should be cooked, honestly. Utah should be cooked. Um, but let's wait and see what happens though. I'm, I'm not going to change the prediction just yet, but damn, Utah is disappointing, man. <laughs> Utah is infinitely disappointing because I, I was came into this series and I had full confidence in going, okay, Jalen Brunson and Dinwiddie will be good, but they will not, uh, post a superstar performance. And then Jalen Brunson looked like prime CP3. So, um, like when, I guess when somebody shows you who you are, who they are, believe them because, uh, I just, I didn't see I didn't see it sinking that low uh, yet. Here we are. Well, no reason to to beat a dead horse there. That's y'all are watching it. Y'all see what's happening. Um, Utah is is in a bit of a pickle. Game two, <laughs> Golden State Warriors, Denver Nuggets. So I had to catch second half of that one while it was live that night, and when I looked at the score shortly before I logged in, Denver was up. Couple of minutes later, they weren't, and then the game was never competitive again. What ended up happening? PTSD. Apparently, that's what they're calling it. They're just excluding Andrew Wiggins. Uh, PTSD. Poole, Thompson, Steph, Dre. I actually like it. I I hate that it's leaving Wiggins out because he is totally a part of it. But uh, I don't know. PTSD kind of seems like it's sticking, bro. I'll be honest with you. It seems like it's sticking. Uh, anyways, that lineup. Death Star lineup, New Death, whatever you want to call it. It is very, very lethal. I I'm stuttering because I had I I had a stat on Twitter about something about their plus minus or whatever in this series against Denver. Anyways, let, let's just think death lineup good, death lineup bad for Nuggets. That's that's basically it. Um it's fast, it has shooting everywhere, it cuts. It flies around on defense. And in this Nugget series specifically, Draymond Green is is able to he's able to just go toe-to-toe with Jokic. That's it. Jokic isn't even having a bad statistical series, but Draymond is able to hold his own enough that they don't need to double and collapse and give other guys open shots. Therefore, um you have it you have that going for them on, on the defensive side, and then on offense, it's Pool throwing behind the back passes to cutters or throwing behind the back passes on fast breaks. It's also pool hitting shots equivalent to what Steph and Clay do. And then it's also Steph coming off the bench, which I don't assume I assume is not going to last forever, but he's scoring a lot in a short amount of time. Um yeah, this so the the Den it's gonna continue in Denver tonight, I believe. And like i'm not sure what the nuggets are supposed to do because they even they were doing a lot of things right to get that lead and then it just it vaporized <laughs> like it just it it just disappeared it disappeared so quickly and funny thing is right now that death lineup is coming out just as a proponent of the rotation so because it's how they finish a quarter it just kind of naturally happens that's the only thing I'm wondering. That's the only little wrinkle in this I, I'm wanting to see ironed out is, well, in what playoff series, it, it does it become a series where you can't really start this? 
Okay, I'll be honest, I don't like the idea of bringing Poole off the bench. I don't like it, especially with the type of rhythm he's in. I know it's more important about how many minutes guys play and how many uh, and who finishes quarters and who finishes games. So I guess it's not that much of a problem, but I also just do remember when they when play first came back. There was like a adjustment period where Poole was kind of struggling going from being such an important piece of the offense to having to start, you know, having to, to come off the bench or play different rotations just play different different patterns and minutes not sure if i want to mess with it but then also steph claypool wiggins dre i feel like there's certain teams where maybe you can't maybe you can't get away with that lineup um so in the second round they'd be playing uh the grizzlies or they'd be playing the the wolves which we don't know yet and so i guess i guess it depends yeah it, just, it literally just depends it, it, at some point you wonder I don't know. It's just a decision that's going to have to be made. Steph is not going to come off the bench the whole the whole series. He's not going to come off the bench the entire run. That'd be fun for narratives, but I doubt it's going to happen. And so I'm just interested to see how they figure that out. For the Nuggets, um, <clears throat> even if they pull off a win in Denver, I just, I just don't know <clears throat> how they're supposed to overcome this. Defensively, they're, they don't match up well. They don't have the firepower to keep up with it. And this looks every bit as dreadful to defend as some of the Warriors' best lineups they they put out there. Again, having Poole be uh, a, having a number three that does the things Poole does that's um, that's a that's kind of a rarity for Golden State. They had Kevin Durant, but then outside of that, it's it's a rarity. So when you see it like this, it, it gets it literally. I guess that's why you would call it PTSD because it reminds you of a time when Golden State literally could not be defeated. So. I'm very interested for the future of it, but for right now, yeah, Denver is frustrated. They're yelling at each other. DeMarcus Cousins and, and Will Barton are jawing at each other on the sideline. Jokic is getting ejected. It's it's just it's just really tough. There's not a great amount of basketball here that's interesting to discuss so far. It's been two blowouts. Uh, the game ends at a certain point, and unless a fully healthy Jamal Murray and MPJ are walking through the doors of uh, is it still called the Pepsi Center? Wherever Denver plays. Yeah, I don't, I don't really see it. We can just go, go ahead and kind of move on from that one. Tuesday came around, and the Hawks played game two against the Heat. It was a bit closer, a little bit closer, except uh, one problem. Jimmy Butler had a 2020 finals flash against them. He scored, I don't you know, I actually want to get him his, his full plot here. Jimmy Butler scored 45 points. He had five rebounds, five assists. He also hit four three-pointers. So if I'm not mistaken, his first bucket of this series was a three-pointer. This man put on a shooting sleeve and some some uh, compression knee, knee gear, and he's acting different. This changes things quite a bit if, if it's the Jimmy that we're going to get in the playoff run. For right now, it's like, yeah, it's it's ATL, so I'm taking it with a grain of salt. This is a bad defensive team. Uh, at the end of the game, when Atlanta could have made it, uh, uh, um, could have made it a game or could have made it a tie tie game or whatever. Jimmy Butler involved Trey Young in in pick and roll, and Trey Young like Trey Young came around the other side of it and just swiped at the ball and did not do anything else. Jimmy Butler just got right past him. It's uh, it's not great. And Jimmy's doing a lot of things. He's hitting mid-range shots. He's getting to the rim. He's being very offensively competent, which is 
uh, great sign for Miami. Just from an aggression standpoint, taking what the Hawks give him, that's great. Not that he's going to be able to do this against better defensive teams. Not, not that it's a sure he can do it against better defensive teams, but this is a good start. This is a really good start. You like to see him at least being aggressive the way he can be. That's a good sign for, for what you might need from him later. As far as Atlanta, they went ahead and started John Collins, went small, uh, started him at the five. Atlanta just, it's it's tough. They don't have Clint Capella, who's, he, he and Trey Young hooked up for so many lob connections throughout this year. So the role threat is pretty much not, is not what it's been this season. But other problem is Trey Young can't really get much going on the pick and roll, which is kind of where he does his most damage. So obviously, yeah, that's one thing with Capella being out, but that's one part of it. And the second part of it is trying to figure out what you do when uh, you're basically like, all right, well, we're not, we're just not going to involve Bam out of bio in, a, in an action because we know he can switch or we know he can contain this. So then you just go to the other side of the floor and now it's just Jimmy Butler instead. It just doesn't feel like two great options. And because of it, Trey Young, he, he's turning the ball over. He's not shooting well from three. He's not getting clean looks from three for the most part. The only clean look I have off the top of my head was kind of towards the end of the game in transition and they found him in the corner and he was open but aside from that he's having the his pull-ups are not clean looks um and if they are clean looks they're really far from the basket and although he can hit those that's just it's just not what you can really live off of so they were able to keep the game close Bogdanovich had a had an like all-time bogey performance but uh just not enough at the end just a whole lot of jimmy and they are now going to ATO 2-0. I would venture to say, like, maybe find some avenues to use Trey off ball. And that's tough because, again, he's just done so much damage with the ball all season. However, <clears throat> against his Miami defense, it does not appear he's going to be able to create those same looks. So, I don't know. Find something to run him off screens see if that works which Miami is also defensively competent there so I'm not sure that it will I'm also not sure you can even get a full Trey Young experience that way if if you're using Trey Young off the ball and somebody else is taking the ball up the floor or somebody else is setting up the offense I, I think you feel like you kind of won if you're Miami and you've made them resort to that full time so yeah um yeah I don't know Trey, Trey Young is turning the ball over a lot it's cold from three and he's just very uncomfortable right now yeah, but like I said, if, if Trey Young gets a game where he goes off, they could win one. Like, they almost won last game with Bogey going off. So, they can get one like that, but Miami seems fully equipped. And you got Jimmy Butler going like this. And that's the other part. With him hitting threes, look how they're guarding him right now. That's what I'm afraid of for down the line if it ends up being Celtics-Miami in the conference finals. See, I was fully preparing for a world where we just stick Robert Williams on him and say, Rome. And although it, that was just something I wanted to test because Jimmy Butler is a good playmaker, so it's not like he's a Bruce Brown or anything, but I was fully looking forward to a, a world of taking advantage of him not having shot the three well or the mid-range well this season and just going, all right, well, go score on this tall athletic guy if you want to be a part of the series or playmaker if you want to be a part of the series. I was looking forward to that, but even the Hawks right now, look at since game one, how the coverage has, has kind of changed. They're playing up on him. Because he, he's, he, like I said, seven threes, he's taking them. And right now he's making them. Um, that changes things if you have to step up on Jimmy Butler. And you have Max Drews out there. 
and sometimes it's Tyler Hero and then Duncan Robinson. That just changes things quite a bit. That makes Miami a, a much more competent and serious unit. So that so far I'm afraid of, but let's see if it continues. I would love if it regresses to the mean of this season and we don't have to worry about that going forward. But yeah, not too much to say about Hawks and Heat. That, that series should not uh, take that much longer at the current rate. Grizzlies and Timberwolves. So the Grizzlies had your typical contender bounce back game too. Um, it's funny when I was younger and I used to watch basketball, it just felt like this stuff used to happen. I didn't, again, I wasn't paying attention to X's and O's in the seventh grade or eighth grade of, of an actual NBA game. So it just always felt like, oh, if a contending team lost their first home game, oh yeah, they'll come back and play serious next time. Um, the actual explanation for how the Grizzlies did it, they actually made it, they, they made legitimate adjustments. Steven Adams played two minutes and 50 seconds. So shout out to Taylor Jenkins for that. We listened to game one recaps podcast. I said, this is not the series for him. We, he was getting switched on to Anthony Edwards. He was out of position and, and letting cat get to his spots or letting cat, um, get ahead of steam. It just, Steven Adams feet are just too slow for this series. Basically what I was saying. So he's got to go and he did go, he started, but they got him out of there quick. I believe it was, I, it was actually cause of a flagrant, I think, or something with a foul, but anyways, he did not return. And I saw more minutes for slow-mo Kyle Anderson, Xavier Tillman, who did not play a single minute in, in game one and um brandon clark so obviously that means the grizzlies downsized a bit they they were able to go small you saw some some possessions with kyle anderson on cat so something similar to what the clippers did not exactly but having a smaller body on him than just being you know having help ready that type of thing and xavier tillman so he had some solid defensive possessions man he had some solid defensive possessions where he and you you wouldn't think about looking at him but he certainly moved better than steven adams would and then on offense, he was in the right place at the right time uh, off of some rolls. And he he ends up with 13 points. He was a, a big difference in this. Just having his minutes versus Steven Adams, that was a big, big difference. Cat got in foul trouble, so that was obviously uh, another difference. Not having him out there to, to you know, try to stress the matchups. And then also the fact Anthony Edwards did not get going nearly as fast. So that also hurt them. As far as John Morant, man, shout out to shout out to job, bro. Like he did some some younger people stuff on Twitter and Instagram throughout the uh, off days. He was posting emojis and he posted the Michael Jordan shit talking video from Last Dance where he's like, yeah, anybody can talk words when they're up. But let's see. Who, let's see who's talking when it's tied. He posted that while they were down and then came out and had a good game. I'm always impressed by stuff like that just because you post that. And you come out and have a bad game. Like, what do you even do there? Do you delete the post? Do you just act like it didn't happen? <laughs> you pretty much put yourself on the hook that you have to perform next. And he did. John ja, ja Morant absolutely did perform. Um, I thought that, you know, specifically because of the lineup changes, it was uh, it, it was able to. Well, first of all, in transition, like that was another big thing. In transition. And then not even if the if the Timberwolves scored, they were just going a lot faster. Jaw was just going a lot faster rather than walking the ball up and calling a screen and then just letting the Timberwolves get into exactly the defensive stance they want. I felt like things were much faster paced for Jaw, and so he was able to to just kind of do you know get his feet in the paint and, and knife through the defense and get to the rim, you know, put a lot more pressure on them than trying to do it from a standstill. When you're trying to do it from standstill, there's certain teams you can do it. 
uh, from a standstill position with, and that takes less energy, so it's cool. But the Timberwolves made, made life tough in game one, so he just said, all right, let's speed this up a little bit. And uh, he was definitely able to open up his own game. And again, the playmaking, that was the, the big thing and the predictions that we did. I thought that Ja might be a better playmaker than a scorer this series. But in this particular game, he was a playmaker and a scorer. So it got out of hand. Um, and because Cat wasn't really there to respond and Anthony Edwards wasn't nearly as effective. And obviously he didn't have Steven Adams to switch on to. The Grizzlies prevailed. Grizzlies opened up that game. It was never really close afterwards. And uh, it, it kind of felt like at a certain point to Minnesota. Minnesota was kind of playing like, all right, we already got what we came here for. So once they started getting hit in the head, once there was fouls, it was like, all right, Memphis can't lose this game. They're playing like they can't lose it. Um, I'm not saying Minnesota laid down, but it was pretty clear at a certain point. It just this game wasn't as important anymore. They weren't going to make a comeback. And they didn't. Um, so you get 23, 9, and 10 from Jaw. Uh, 2 for 4 from 3. So didn't even take more than he needed to. Brandon Clark, big minutes. He's going to be very important. He allows them to, to slip screens that the Tim Wolves might be trying to, to show two bodies on or trap on. So that's very good. Xavier Tillman has to continue getting minutes. That's that's just uber important. And Steven Adams doesn't need to see really a single second anymore. Uh, of this series i would be surprised if they didn't start small next game and going with uh brandon clark and then Ju and then jaron jackson at the five which by the way shout out to jaron jackson looks like he uh, uh oh my god my, never mind he still had four fouls all right <laughs> that must that part must happen once the game was over um but still yeah i, I would say probably jaron jackson five uh brandon clark four start that way and then have xavier tillman be your your bench guy because it just doesn't really feel like it's important to to even uh make steven adams think he's he's a part of this series and he understands it he said he, he understands uh coach explained to him why he did what he did and he's like oh, cool if that's gonna help the team win cool steven adams is a cool guy he doesn't i don't think he's gonna throw a fit over the over not having to to be out there switch on the ant and cat if anything this gives his knees a rest maybe they'll need him in another series they don't need him for this one very excited for the next game though um because now now the adjustment is on the Timberwolves side ball is in their court you know jaw has has sped the game up now what are you going to do what are you going to do to to shore up transition and make make that a point because i think they're going to keep doing that jaw gets the ball if if they're able to get a stop on one end they're he's pushing it on the other end he's going to push you because he knows how much harder life is going to get if he's just using shot clock to try to score um your off-ball defense, like get your off-ball defenders in tune because not the only thing he's trying to do. Like if it's you know, Xavier Tillman on the floor, he moves very well. And so if you're paying so much attention to, attention to a jaw off of a pick and roll, he's going to slip a pass right between the middle of y'all and, and Tillman's going to be there to finish. Uh, how are you going to engage your guys from Brandon Clark slips? Because that's, uh, that's a big thing. That's one of the things he's out there. And then Cat, uh, they're going to have to start thinking about Cat too, so... And didn't really get to see how he can be effective against this defense, but uh, you need him and Ant at least to, to be going. You need two of the three. You need two of Russell and and Cat going to, to win these type of games. And so now the thing is, all right, well, you're probably going to see more small lineups here on out. Cat is not just going to be sitting wide open because Steven Adams is, is slowly moving around the floor. Uh, how do you adjust to that? Because they're going to think the needle is going to move closer and closer to what the Clippers were doing. I don't know that they're going to duplicate it, but the needle is going to move closer to that. And so if it's Brandon Clark guarding Cat, 
Um, you know, how do you how do you apply pressure to that and not just let Jaron Jackson roam? And how do you engage Jaron Jackson and, and continue to ensure that uh, he gets in massive foul trouble? Because then all of a sudden now you you got it. Yeah, if if it's bad enough, you might have to engage a, a Stephen Adams back into the series. If Jaron Jackson is sitting, you, know, you, you might have to mix him back in. So don't let them hide Stephen Adams, basically, if you can. Yeah, it's gonna be interesting. This is still a series. The Grizzlies responded, but um, you know, there, there's ways there, there's ways for the Timberwolves. Let's see what happens when the first quarter doesn't take an hour because of fouls. I'm still interested in this series. Guess what series I'm now actually interested in? The Suns and Pelicans. Oh boy. Well, I initially came in and said I'm not really interested in this series just because it's it's the Suns going against this young Pels team. And it shouldn't be like I, I really expected it to be more like game one, where even if the Pels fight, the Suns should be firmly in control of it. And the, the Pels did fight and they got it close. And of course, Chris Paul did what he did in game one. Game two happened, and there's some there's some cool things uh, going on here. First of all, the Suns were heavily reliant on Devin Booker in the first half. He got into takeover, so got into that zone where even if you have a hand up, even if you, you're bodying him, he's still hitting shots. That's just that's just always infinitely tough to deal with. Um, he had 31 by the time the first half was over. Then comes the problem. Well, first of all, because Devin Booker was doing so much, there wasn't there wasn't a whole lot coming from other guys. And he went out sometime in the third quarter with hamstring tightness. That is right now. They're saying making it likely he will not play in game three or four. That is a big, big deal. Um, the Pelicans are a good team. I bit, I, I'm saying I already told y'all I bought all my stock. I'm just waiting for Zion to come back, but I've already bought all my stock because the pieces are all in place. They have use for, for Jackson Hayes. This is a, that's a big ass dude that they have out there switching onto guard sometimes. And then even on offense in a regular season, he was finding ways to score, although he's playing power forward and he doesn't have a great shot. He's finding ways to score by cutting and, and such. They found use for him, found use for a Trey Murphy in hitting some three. They found obviously Herb Jones, the uses uses there um, and, and defense. And I just can't wait to see how much better his offensive game gets. But Jose Alvarado don't even need to go over what he does. They have use for everyone damn near that they use, except for <laughs> except for Tony Snell, who I don't think he's got a playoff minute so far. I don't really know. Um, Every, everybody else, like this team, every, all the pieces are in place. They just don't have Zion Williams, and that's it. The pieces are in place for them to be a competitive team, though. Off the top of my head, what are they, 9-3 and three now in games that Brandon Ingram and CJ play? This is a legitimate team that just doesn't have the record to back it up because they had such a, 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 it's such a season with guys just being in and out with Ingram missing time and Zion never being there, and then CJ not coming until the end. Their record reflects that. Their record does not reflect what they actually are at the moment. Um, so... They were, com they were competitive down the stretch of game one. And I'm saying all this to say not that they could compete with the, the healthy Suns in, like, in a series. I don't think they could. But now that Booker is gone, it changes things quite a bit. It changes things a lot. Because um, in the second half of that game, what you saw is, oh, well, all of a sudden, the, the best player on the floor is Brandon Ingram. And he played like the best player on the floor. Ingram too has that takeover. Not maybe as efficient as Booker, whatever it is, whatever you want to say. Maybe not. It doesn't explode quite the same as Devin Booker, but he does have the takeover where 
you basically just have to hope the shot doesn't go in. You have to start praying sometimes when Brennan Ingram gets into his mid-range zone. Um, they were finding ways to get him open threes. They were generating a lot of open shots, which is what scares me for the Suns now without Devin Booker. Because this was not just a case of, like how we talked about the Jazz earlier, a lot of their their offense right now is just uh, hope somebody can create something. Just, just hope, basically. The Pelicans in this game too, and I watched game two closer than I watched game one, so that's what I could speak on. They were not just hitting, oh damn, these are tough buckets. These are just, these are just whatever. They're not going to hit these again. No, they were generating legitimately good looks. They were getting open shots. They're getting the defense to collapse. They're getting what they want. And they have players that can knock those shots down. You got players that can create. You got two players that can create at a very high level. So going forward, and so they, they closed this game out. It was still close even without Devin Booker. But like now you have to depend on Chris Paul turning the clock back for two games. And I'm really interested to see that because you have Herb Jones who is going to be able to focus his defensive efforts all on Chris Paul. Uh, I know he had some possessions on Devin Booker and it just didn't even matter because Book was being Book. But now, okay, uh, Chris Paul... Herb Jones on him, and then he calls for a screen. What if it's Jackson Hayes on the other side of that, who has so far proved to be switchable? Um, I just feel like there's there's ways to apply a lot of pressure to a Chris Paul offensively led team. I mean, a lot of pressure to where maybe he doesn't just completely beat you up like he did in the, the fourth quarter, and you don't have Devin Booker as a release valve even in that situation. Now you're hoping Landry Shamit hit some shots. Uh, now, what are you going to be able to squeeze out of uh, Mikhail Bridges? Is Are you going to be able to beat them up with Aiden? You have to go to some secondary things against a Pels team that has now stole one from you. And they did it in a pretty impressive way. Um, they didn't lay down and die when Devin Booker started hitting those shots. And they were up by six or seven points. Because Book stayed for quite a while after that before he, before he went out. And um yeah I'm, I'm glad the ingram talk has become has come full circle on this pod i've been talking about ingram for a long time now uh, i told you that's legit one of my favorite players to watch and to see him in the playoffs okay first you just had my attention now now i'm curious because i was like all right yeah brandon ingram's in the playoff this is cool but i i have other playoff series i can you know really give my energy to now i'm curious the Suns still should be able to win the series. We don't know how long Devin Booker is out. We just know that at this specific moment, games three and four, it's not likely. Oh, uh, and they're in New Orleans. And man, I can't wait to see what the Suns do offensively now uh, for a full game. Because you don't even have that that buffer from game two where, you know, maybe Cam Johnson's not hitting threes or, you know, you're not really getting much from somewhere else. So you just let Devin Booker catch fire. You don't even have that to start now. You don't have that factor at all. And Brandon Ingram, they are going. I'm interested to see if they're going to give Mikhail Bridges, Mikhail Bridges some more moments on him, some more minutes on him. Uh, at the moment, I think Mikhail has guarded him. But at last game, I think it was only a couple possessions. It's easy to. Just think Brandon Ingram cooked Mikhail Bridges. That is absolutely not what happened. I really think it was a couple of possessions that they they had him guarding him. They might want to think about putting their defensive player of the year candidate literally just on Ingram. But then also that's the issue with this team. That's an AC to say how have C- CJ McCollum too. So in another world that works where you just try to clamp 
Ingram up, but CJ is creating two now, and the floor is open, and there's some things they can do screening for each other. All of a sudden, this goes from a series of, oh yeah, it's a it's a fun team, but the Suns will be able to be able to drag them more often than not to, ooh, okay, now the Suns are actually going to have to get creative, because um, I'm not sure with what this Pelican squad has displayed, I'm not sure if Chris Paul is going to be able to just, you know, take what he did in quarter four of game one and spread that over a series or spread that over two games um without without a pro without a second basically creator right now without a second shot creator and the pelicans just being able to key in that's gonna be it's gonna be very interesting man aiden is gonna have to really he's gonna have to step into a role here deandre aiden is gonna have to step into a role here he's been finishing well all season but jv is also like 100 feet tall too so it's not like he i'm not sure if he's just gonna be able to hook him to death for a couple of games um and then if mikhail bridges does draw the brandon ingram assignment uh you know, how useful is he gonna be on on offense are you gonna how much are you gonna be able to squeeze out of him on both ends this is all of a sudden a very interesting series man i don't rule out a world where the pelicans come out of new orleans tied back to phoenix and then devin booker's status is still up in the air um so yeah just unfortunate timing man unfortunate timing but it literally happens to the best of them and then Wednesday came. The Boston Celtics played game two of their series against the Brooklyn Nets. Never in a million years would I have told you that the Nets were going to have a game where Kevin Durant was first average and then followed that up by one of his worst playoff performances ever. Once again, shout out to y'all that were in the Twitch watch party we did for this. It was an amazing time, especially watching it unfold. I could not believe my eyes. I have seen Kevin Durant struggle like this very few times. The only two that even come to mind are uh, whichever year that was, they played Tony Allen and 2016 against the Warriors. And even in those, it didn't feel like what the hell, because having Tony Allen chase him around, it's like, OK, I, I see it. And then in, in 2016, Steve Kerr basically baiting KD into a, a lot of a lot of ISO play and just, you know, not having shots fall. Yeah, that was kind of like, oh, wow, this is strange, but not as strange as this because he is having trouble even getting the ball up, fam. The turnovers. What is he at? Six turnovers last night? Three turnovers in a quarter? He's having trouble catching the ball. He's having trouble raising up with the ball. He's having trouble dribbling the ball. It actually looks like Thunderstruck. Even the looks that KD normally makes, he's not making. He, we basically gave him an open three late in the game last night. He didn't make that. He got to his pull-up one time on Al Horford. He didn't make that. Hell, he got to a pull-up on Jason Tatum that Tatum kind of contested to the side. He didn't make that. So those are looks that I am just, I'm fucking flabbergasted about those. And then the rest of the looks, this is just one of the best defensive jobs I've ever seen on played on Kevin Durant. Seriously, he can't get to his spot without fighting. He can't catch the ball without fighting. He can't evaluate the floor without fighting. He is being absolutely harassed and swarmed. Now, other piece of that for game two is Kyrie didn't play well either. Kyrie Irving did not play well. And it's basically just them two taking turns. It's... Kevin Durant being harassed and then Kyrie Irving trying to get to get to a pull up. That's that's all they really have outside of that. It's randomness. 
They started that game with one of the few adjustments Steve Nash has made as a coach where they said, all right, Bruce Brown, they, they're leaving you open. They're using you against us. We need you to be aggressive. He started that game aggressive and scored nine straight points. He hit his threes. He he um, attacked the space as hard as he could because they need him to be able to do that. If Bruce Brown is not attacking space or using that space to generate a lob or something, if he's not using the space, then he is a, he's a negative for your squad on offense. Seriously, he is because I don't care if he hits his first two threes. We're not guarding the third or the fourth. It don't matter. Um, so that happened, and then Goran Dragic came in, and he's done this before in the regular season. They had a game against the Knicks, I believe, or the Mavs, where Goran Dragic basically came kept them alive. Yeah, Dragic kept them kept them afloat, hitting his open shots. Hell, even creating some shots. All they needed was for literally one of Kyrie or KD to, to just be like 70% of themselves and they had a one. That's all they needed because at the point that Seth Curry is hitting his open shots too, which yeah, he has been, he's been um, Jalen Brown or whoever has been closing out to an open shot and then he just takes one dribble to the side and hits it. Seth Curry is doing what he needs to do. Rogic did what he needed to do last night. Bruce Brown did what he needed to do. They just needed KD to hit some pull-ups. Or they needed Kyrie to hit some pull-ups or or create. And they couldn't get those. So it took a while for Boston's offense to, to start churning. And once it did, once they really got on a run, the more turnovers they forced, the, the tide of the game turned. The Nets are right now in some trouble. Uh, the keys to the series are showing. So Drummond, they played him a little bit more yesterday, it felt like. And he did better as a, as a big body um and, and rebounding and hell the it, team the team did better rebounding yesterday they there were some good minutes from him their problem lies in the fact that once again this was the one of the keys was their depth they're just not a deep team and that affects them on offense and defense ben simmons will not fix their problems but they need ben simmons because if you notice what happens, and I don't know why Boston waits so long for this to really attack it consistently, but you notice what happens in the last four minutes of a game is all of a sudden Boston is going, all right, come here, Kyrie. Uh, let, let me see. Let me see a little of you and whoever the other small guy is that they have on the floor, whether it's Patty Mills or Goran Dragic. They're like, all right, come here. It's, it's your now it's your time. You got to play some defense. I will say Kyrie's given he he his activity on defense is actually pretty nice. He just doesn't really physically have the the tools to compete with uh, boston's taller guys taller wings but his activity he you he bodies up well he he uses his hands and tries to get strips and pokeaways it's not like Kyrie's just a he, he's not just a, a zero on defense he's you know, he's not a cone but he's small and so the end of the game where they're just able to take jalen brown on him and say go turn the corner or they're able to have Tatum on Goran Dragic and Tatum's able to he, he's either able to drive or just shoot right over him. That's where they really need Ben Simmons. And problem with that is even if you add Ben Simmons into the series, which it looks like they might in game three or four, they have to learn with Steve Nash as their coach how to use Ben Simmons on offense. And Simmons has been playing point guard his whole life. He is not going to be the point guard for the Nets as uh, as far as I'm concerned, he's not. Um, because if he is, we're going to sag off. Like, <laughs> like I can see a world where y'all are going, all right, uh, now maybe we can run some off ball stuff for Kyrie and, and use his gravity. But if you have Simmons doing that at the, at the top, then literally we're just going to sag off and negate that. So, 
Um, go ahead and get that out your head, I'm assuming. And then with that being known, that means he's going to be playing uh, either Bruce Brown's role or uh, one of the bigs roles. So essentially like forward spot or a, a big spot. And they have to learn how to, he, he has to learn how to do that on offense. And they have to you know, throw a guy in the middle of an intense playoff series that they now must win uh, the next games with and just figure out how to use Simmons. That's going to be interesting. But at least on defense, they could totally use him because that is that that does cost Brooklyn the, at the very end of games where KD is not a defender, which, by the way, KD over over close. He closes out way too hard. Like, I don't know if it's because of the Achilles. Maybe that's an effect of the Achilles. But a lot of the times Durant, if he's out of position, and there's an open three. He will run and sell out for it. And that's it. Like after you beat him, you beaten him. KD is, is not a he's got no he doesn't have great off ball awareness, and right now it doesn't look like his body is is really allowing him to do anything great on defense, other than sit. I guess he's best placed at the free throw line and just kind of using his wingspan to bother people as help. Other than that, he's not. He's got really no defensive use uh, anymore. Um, yeah. So they and so they could use Simmons to stick on a Jalen Brown, stick on a Tatum. Maybe keep them from switching onto them. That that is where Simmons' usefulness could be at this series, because that really does end up making a difference later in the game. And yeah, as far as this game went, you know, Boston's defense ended up uh you know, they just created so many turnovers that it was you know, it was hard to overcome when you when neither of your stars are hitting. And they're both in a box. I've never seen KD in a box like this, is a thing. Like, he is actually boxed. That's that's crazy. That is not something that I hoped would happen coming into the series. I didn't think it was realistic. But, boy, Horford and Grant Williams, or whoever is there, man, whatever two they put on them are just making it extremely difficult. And even once Simmons comes back, this is where you could probably use a Joe Harris, I'm guessing. Just because having, man, ha- having, and even then, if you replace Bruce Brown with Joe Harris, not defensively, you got issues. But just like I said, coming into it, man, having, having Bruce Brown on the floor and, and another big is literally just allowing this to happen. Because I'm already plotting, because of what I'm about to talk about the next series, I'm already kind of plotting the course of a potential Celtics Bull series. And the Bulls you can't necessarily do that to them. They're running guys that are willing to shoot and are pretty much able to shoot. So even if the activity is really high, it is much harder to to just harass a DeRozan um, than it is to to harass you know KD when Nick Claxton is just in the paint. Drummond is in the paint. It is it's going to be much harder to do that. Um, yeah. So good game to win. The Nets were up by 17. They just needed one guy to come with them, and they couldn't get that. Uh, I, I will say the one thing that bothers me about Boston. This is the only thing that bothers me. Because I'm looking down the road now. If we're if we're able to close the nets out, I'm just looking down the road, and it bothers me that for most of the game or for much of the game, Jalen Brown his aggressiveness it, it bothers me. Um, he's got Seth Curry guarding him. That's a much smaller body. I don't know why we why they haven't attacked that as much yet. And they won these first two games, so cool. But. I just feel like at the point that we're struggling to score, there should be a very obvious, okay, uh, JB, go attack Seth or get him in the mid post area. And so far, Boston now has tried to throw three or four post entry passes. And they, I think I'm pretty sure three of them have resulted in turnovers. 
We've not been able to throw a single clean post-entry pass, bro. It's the most frustrating thing in the world. And so those mismatches don't often get taken advantage of the way that I think that they could. And then it also feels like, like I said, they do wait until around the fourth quarter to really start attacking a guy like Kyrie. Um, and so for a lot of the game, his his defensive, you know, the advantage that you could be taking, I feel like it shows in other ways. And then at the very end, they're just like, all right, cool, we're going to kill now. And some of these scoring droughts, I feel like they could focus on that a little bit better. Jalen Brown had Andre Drummond on him last night. He took a step back for God knows why. He had Patty Mills on him. He took a step back. I'm like, bro, you're a good 10 feet taller than any of the, the perimeter players that are guarding you. Go kill, man. Like, at, at bare minimum, draw help. Just at a minimum, draw help. Um, And I just felt like when they were struggling to come back that whole time, there was just a lot of... There's a lot of stupid things going on, but they did it. They ended up getting the open shots. Horford shot well. Grant Williams shot well. They ended up getting their looks and they ended up hitting them. So whatever. But um, I do worry about a, a more competent team later on and them not and them losing out on points because um, I don't know, because they just didn't, didn't attack. Don't want to see it. Just do not want to see it. Well, yeah, that's pretty much it for that game. <clears throat> the narratives are going to be disgusting. The narratives are going to be absolutely disgusting. Should uh, should Kevin Durant not at least have one or two good games this series? It's it's bad right now. Let's move us to our. I'm trying. I feel like there was one more thing I wanted to say about the Nets, but not really because I'm not. Do, I'm not doing heavy narrative talk. Oh, Kyrie Irving made a comment that kind of made it sound like the series was over. After the game, he basically gave Boston their props and was going, "Oh yeah, those are that's a good group of guys, and their window is now." And, you know, such and such. I was like, oh, um, the, the full quote basically sounded like something you say when the series is over. So I was a little bit shocked to hear that because they still have two games left in Brooklyn. And I don't know why he would be laying down now when all they needed to like they could they could be 2-0 right now. They could have walked out of Boston with both of these wins, but lost one on a buzzer beater, lost a second one because you just didn't play well. It's not over. The series is not over. Boston still has to go at this ferociously and close it. Because if Kevin Durant, you know, if one of them, if one or both of them flame on, now all of a sudden you got a tied series. So, um, yeah, that's that's interesting. The mindset is interesting. Last series, Bucks Bulls. All right. <clears throat> Excuse me. Oh wow, we got a series all of a sudden. We've got a series. So the Bulls could have won Game One. They didn't. I'm frustrated. I went and I rewatched the whole Bulls Bucks game this morning because I caught the last half of it. And I was able to see the score while we were watching the Celtics and Nets game. And so I did see what was going on. I'm very frustrated with Milwaukee. First of all, they came out and they tried to finesse the Bulls last night. They did. They tried to finesse Chicago. They they got game one. It really feels like they have not taken the Bulls seriously at all. And game two, you really saw that in their execution. The turnover is insane. Apparently, they had a high turnover game in game one as well. But the turnovers were bad, man, because save for one of the on-ball steals that I believe Caruso had on Drew Holiday, it was literally them just throwing the ball away, man. Just not looking at the guy they were throwing the ball to, assuming he was going to be in a certain spot. Literally just throwing it away, just passing it out of bounds. There's that. Then their offensive game plan for much of the game, for a great percentage of this game, was basically, 
Giannis, be big. Like that was it. That was that was it. Giannis, be tall. Yeah, run and it's it, it really felt like I was watching the older Bucks teams, the ones before they figured out how to win the championship. It was just Giannis be big. Uh run and try to lay the ball up over three people. Uh pass it to him in the paint and just try to bully them. Nothing creative. It's like they don't take the bulls seriously. And so they're not even trying to get into any of the creative bags. They're just going, oh, okay, it's Chicago. We can we can literally just we can just beat these guys. We just go in and we just play some hoops and beat these guys. So between the lack of execution on offense in terms of focus being focused and actually doing anything, um, they tried to finesse Chicago. And they almost did it. They almost finessed them. So you see why they tried it, but they tried to finesse them. They are uh, for for much of that game, I'd say for the first half, one of the biggest problems and why they were down is because Chris Middleton was a literal NPC. He was just there. So he he had a couple of I think he took three shots in the first half. I didn't they, I didn't see him really get the ball. I didn't see them run anything creative for him. I didn't see any Chris Middleton action. And then even when he did get involved. It was him hitting open shots. It was him hitting catch and shoot shots like he's Brooke Lopez. There was not a whole lot of 2021 Chris Middleton, 2021 finals Chris Middleton stuff or against the Nets where he decided to go off. He wasn't really applying pressure. This Bucks team is simply not the championship team if Chris Middleton is, is not applying pressure. Is Drew Holiday, that's cool for Drew Holiday. If Drew just hits a couple of open catch and shoot threes, uh, but he's also digging into the team on the defensive end. That's cool for Drew Holiday. Chris Middleton needs to, we, we need to see pick and roll with him and, and Giannis, or even if they want to get creative, having Chris Middleton set screens within the offense. We need Chris Middleton with the ball in the mid post area, backing down and, and drawing help. Like you need all of that. It cannot just be, oh yeah, he was open. Uh, the defense collapsed and Middleton hit some threes. That was good. He got them back into it by hitting the shots he was supposed to hit. But for a ton of that game, there was no pressure being applied whatsoever. You know what the problem with that is? They need that from Chris Middleton, and now he's out. Yeah, he slipped. He slipped on a wet spot. He sprained his MCL. We don't know the severity of it yet, but just from what we know about sprained MCLs, he could be gone, like, most, if not all, of this series. Uh, but we'll see. Again, like, Giannis's entire knee almost folded in half, and he played a couple of days later. But that's also Giannis, and he said he put his whole career at risk for that. Yeah, Chris Middleton, I'm not sure, fam. And they already weren't being creative with him, and they needed to be creative with him, and they needed his aggression. They won't even have that option now. So all of a sudden, this series is in a different place. And just to show you how much the Bucks were trying to pull off a finesse, one of the first possessions of this game was a Drew Holiday and, and, and Giannis screen. Pick and roll. The Bulls switched it. And now Giannis has Levine in the post. So now Drew Holiday, all he had to do was swing it to, I believe it was Wesley Matthews, whoever was on the left wing. Drew Holiday just needed to swing it to the wing and give it to Giannis in the post. And now you probably got a double team and somebody's got an open shot. Instead of that, and it was early in the shot clock, Middleton just pulled up from three, like two or three feet behind the three-point line. Man, just pulled up, just, just shot it. And they didn't even look at Giannis down there. I didn't understand that at all, but that that set the tone for the game. But the Bucks just kind of felt like, oh, as long as we just force our way to the bucket, as long as we just and okay, when they caught back up in, in the first quarter, they they were creating a good number of of open threes. Brooke Lopez was on, Wesley Matthews hit some threes. They created some nice shots there, 
But once that stopped, once the creation stopped, once they weren't getting open threes, it was just kind of Giannis. <laughs> Be big. That was it. That was it. And we know that he could do that. We know he could score over Vooch. We know he can draw fouls, but they're beyond that now. The Bucks have won a championship. They're a championship team. They are beyond that. Uh, Bobby Portis got hit in his face by Tristan Thompson. So Tristan Thompson completed his mission in the spare minutes he got. He injured a player. Uh, Bobby Portis had double vision. He did not return. I'm assuming he'll probably be back. Is a laceration on the eye. He'll probably. Bobby Portis is a tough cookie. He'll play. But him not being in that game means you got a lot of Giannis five minutes. It was basically just Giannis and Brook Lopez as your big. So that shortens the rotation. You need Bobby Portis. Portis is, is very important to that team. Um, Bobby and Portis, as he is affectionately known and referred to. He rebounds. Uh, obviously stretches the floor. Now it's another shooter for you. You need him in that. So you missed Bobby Portis. You missed Chris Middleton. You still almost finessed the win, but you dropped this game and you're going forward into the unknown. My uh, what, third or fourth problem, I don't know kind of how many problems I have with the team. Uh, one issue that the Bucks have at the moment is guarding this team. So Patrick Williams coming back is huge for the Bulls. Him being back we thought he wasn't coming back this season him being back is so big for the bulls he's not uh so far as i can tell he's not afraid to shoot the ball he's taking some mid-range shots he'll take a three so he keeps the floor appropriately spaced and in the lineups that chicago was playing i'm not sure you have the ability to play off of anyone caruso was hitting it history again patrick williams is not a, a zero on offense Booch in game two hit his threes. So game one, he scored a lot, but his field goal percentage was not great. He didn't hit a lot of his threes. Uh, he hit a lot last night. He hit a lot of open looks. Not only did he hit that, he had some mid-range. He mixed in some some post moves. Vooch was very good and aggressive. Uh, not news, right? An aggressive and offensively competent Vooch changes the math. He changes the team. All of a sudden, uh, when DeRozan is doing what he's doing and Vooch is spacing, now you got a big problem because you're you're uh, choosing between DeRozan hitting shots or Vooch hitting shots, which there was a stretch in the season where both were happening when I think it was when Levine was out. Um, so when that's happening, you that's a different Bulls team. And that's where I was talking about with a potential Celtics and Bulls matchup earlier. Should should this Chris Middleton absence really matter and that end up happening? Because Chicago, they don't have that Bruce Brown and Drummond or Bruce Brown and Claxton effect. You can't just play off of guys and harass. Now, I will say this. The Bucks' activity on defense has got to go up. It's got to go way, 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 way up. Um, if you remember, I made a DeRozan video around two months ago talking about how difficult his mid-range is to stop. And one of the things I was saying was I, I felt like it would probably work in the playoffs because who are you playing off of? Who are you coming off to, to double? And as the season drug on, it became, well, Vooch is shooting, what, 30, 31% from three. So you don't need to pay attention to him. Um, you know, if, they, if they're if they running certain lineups with like a Derrick Jones Jr. or Javante Green, you know, maybe you can spare some there. But I did have that feeling, though, that, hey, they have lineups they can run where it can make it very hard to apply the pressure needed to DeRozan. But, by the way, DeRozan uh, kind of hunted Giannis on some possessions last night with, on possessions that Giannis was switched on to him. I believe DeRozan missed one shot. There was a possession in the third, near the third or fourth quarter where he actually went at him twice in a row and hit shots over him. 
But the piece that I it was okay. So this was on the when we were talking about the Bulls on the the Twitch show. One thing I was saying is in the playoffs, I really felt like no matter what teams were going to shrink the floor under Rosen, even if it meant giving up open looks, there was just no way that they were going to watch the Rosen walk to his spots because he did it all season. And if he can just do the same exact thing that he did in the regular season, just get to it, just, you know, get to a spot, get in triple threat position, dribble up to the, the, the elbow. If he could just do those things, there's no reason why he shouldn't be able to make it unless he's just nervous. Really, it's not a reason he shouldn't shouldn't be able to duplicate that. So I felt like teams and championship teams are going to go, well, all right, that's not going to happen. We're going to show him too. We're going to have guys shading over. Um, there, there's no way we're just going to let him shoot over outstretched hands because he's proven now he can shoot over outstretched hands, which he did in game two. The Bucks so far, I feel like their activity is not high enough, even if you don't want to double. So again, guys on the Bulls are hitting shots. There's, there's threes everywhere last night. So I get it. Maybe that's not the game to do it, but I didn't I didn't even see guys shading over is the problem. And DeRozan will beat you. He had 41 last night. DeMar DeRozan, all the frozen allegations aside and all that, he will beat you with mid-range shots. He did that to a lot of teams this season. Not necessarily good ones, but he did it to a lot of teams this season. If he's able to get that going, you can sink. I get that you might not be able to double off of Vucevic. I get that you might not be able to... To shade off of uh, Levine. I, I get that. But the activity has got to be tougher. It's got to be tougher. You can't do what you're doing to the Nets right now to the Chicago Bulls. You can't do it to that same degree. But if you get to a potential Celtics Bulls series, I bet you you are not going to see the Rosen just walking into one on one matchups. I guarantee you you're going to see, all right, maybe a, a soft double. And then if he, if you, you know, if you see an obvious pass angle, the defense is already going to be kind of thinking about taking that away and trying to rotate. That's the thing. You need a, a defense that's connected on a string and one that you know everybody's got each other's back. Everybody kind of knows what the next rotation is, uh, a, a squad that can scramble well, because otherwise DeRozan is not afraid to just walk and shoot over Giannis and possibly get fouled. He's not afraid to shoot over Wesley Matthews, not afraid to shoot over what was Middleton. He's just going to just going to keep doing that. And that's exactly what happened last night. So I'm assuming the adjustment for game threes or game four, just moving on, like the adjustment for Milwaukee has to be don't let DeRozan play one on one at any cost. If Vucevic, because Vuce didn't shoot well from three the first game, if Vuce is going to hit shots, if Caruso is going to hit corner threes, which I, I, I hate to bank on that. I mean, I hate to bet against that, but if other guys are going to make other shots and we're just closing out to them a little bit late, that's that's. That is what it is, but you cannot allow DeRozan to get comfortable and let this be a series where he averages 35. And I don't know how many games you want to just bet that he's going to shoot like he did in game one. So, um, that, you know, I guess your saving grace if you're Milwaukee is, hey, we won game one. We didn't necessarily play well. We won, we almost won game two. We just couldn't get a rebound at the end. You look at those things, but again, not having Middleton, that changes things because. They needed a lot from Middleton in the first half, so they didn't even fall into that hole. And without that, gosh, now what are you doing? Uh, does that responsibility shift over to Drew Holiday? Are we now banking on uh, great Drew Holiday offensive games? And, uh, you know, Giannis is not going to... I mean, he can get all the buckets he wants, but run and dunk Giannis died a long time ago. There's a lot more creative ways to... like, And they got really creative in last year's playoffs. There's a lot more creative ways to score. And it, like even the, the second half, the first play of the third or fourth quarter, the very first play was they passed it to Giannis 
they inbounded to Giannis like right above the half court line and he just ran straight to the rim and got blocked because uh, they, they the Bulls closed in on him you're making it easy for him that's all I'm saying you're making it easy for Chicago if that's if that's what you're going to do if you're just going to try to finesse him um yeah so this is interesting man Chicago is is in this now without Middleton even being an option Chicago is in this uh, the Bucks are going to just have to get back into some of their bag that they did last year and create as many open shots like they were doing in the first quarter. Create a, a lot of open looks for Lopez, for um, for Portis. You have to do a lot of that and and get Giannis to be dominant, but also just not have him just forcing because and then adjust on the defensive end, too. That's that's what they got to do here. But yeah, there's a world now where Chicago makes this really interesting, really, really interesting because I cannot understate that Middleton loss. Well, that is it. Uh, like I said, not really talking about... Well, I did talk about the Sixers at the beginning. They are up 3-0. That's the one game three that's been played. These were the game twos. And yeah, injuries now have altered possibly two series. So we'll see where this goes. This is an exciting season. If you enjoyed the pod... It's like postseason. If you enjoyed the pod, be sure to hit the like button. 